Last week, I had the privilege of officiating a friend's wedding up in Minnesota. It's a friend that my wife has been friends with ever since college, and I've known her for about 12 years. And so it was a very exciting uh, event. Uh, We've been praying for Nikki and even for her future husband for many years, and we're very happy and happy with them and excited for them. Uh, Her husband is just a a great man. He's very respectful, very kind, uh, deep heart for Christ. And so we're very, very excited for them. And my son Micaiah had the opportunity to be a ring bearer. Uh, more specifically, uh, he was called Ring Security. Before the wedding, uh, the bride and groom gave each of the ring bearers uh, these special gifts. Came with this little box that says Ring Security. Came with sunglasses and a nice purple bow tie. And they actually carried the box and wore the sunglasses right down the aisle uh, for the wedding. So it was really fun. Um, if you're wondering, what's the other ring bearer doing in that picture? Um, he's trying to act tough. Because, you know, when you're ring security, you have to protect that ring. You have to make sure that no one comes to try to take it away. So he's acting tough. My son, when he sees the camera, he smiles, which is a good thing to do. So, you know, it was really a fun day of celebration, of excitement. And this is the way weddings typically are. Weddings are, are such special occasions. I think as a pastor, it's one of the most special things I'm able to be involved with. Uh, just, it's a very powerful opportunity uh, just to have a hand in helping the bride and groom become husband and wife. Oftentimes near the beginning of the wedding, I, I just remind the couple that this is a day unlike any other day in their entire lives. Because today they are standing before each other before their family and their friends, and before God, committing themselves to one another as husband and wife. Now, weddings in the beginning of marriage are oftentimes full of beauty and joy and even hard work leading up to the wedding. I mean, if you've ever been planning a wedding, especially if you were the bride, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes into the wedding. So there's beauty, there's joy, there's hard work. But many times... Marriages don't keep that beauty and joy and hard work going. Many times, unfortunately, as we're all too aware, the beauty turns into angst. The joy becomes bitterness. And the hard work turns into apathy or stubbornness. We're all familiar with this all too often. In marriage, it is hard work. Now, if you're not married and you're looking forward one day to being married, if you're dreaming about that perfect someone who comes along, you're probably focused on the blessings and the beauty and the fun of marriage. And to be sure, marriage has a lot of blessings. There's a lot of great things that can come with marriage. But marriage is hard work, too. It's not easy to get, take two individuals who've lived a significant, lived all their life up to that point, as, as, as individuals who make their own decisions and they have sin as a part of their lives and they come from different backgrounds and you bring them together, it's hard. It, it is certainly not easy. That's one of the things I try to impress on couples as they're in premarital counseling. I feel kind of bad sometimes because I talk about taking off the rose-colored glasses, but I want to help them deal with the reality that marriage is not easy. And we look around our world today, and it's very obvious that marriage isn't easy because so many marriages are struggling, or so many marriages have even fallen apart. Marriage needs help. And so today we're turning to Scripture, turning to Jesus to see what does he have to say about marriage and also about divorce. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew 5. And I also would like to ask you to put a bookmark, put a pen, put something over in Matthew 19 because we're going to be spending a significant amount of time in Matthew 19 as well. We're in a series right now called Life in the Kingdom. And the series is walking step by step through the Sermon on the Mount. Now next week we're going to be taking a brief hiatus from Life in the Kingdom. We're going to be starting a Christmas series through December that's called A King is Born. Now, there is a tie-in here, because we're talking about kingdom in this series. If there's a kingdom, there's also a king. And so starting next week, we're going to be going through a four-week series on Isaiah chapter 9, where where many hundreds of years before the time of Christ, people were looking to the the coming king. The king ended up being Jesus Christ. So we're going to be celebrating the king who is born, who who would grow up. He died, which is an unusual thing for a king to do, willingly. But now he reigns as the king of kings and lord of lords. So we're going to be beginning that celebration of his birth next week. And then we'll resume the series on the Sermon on the Mount in January. Now, in the last few weeks, I've been reflecting on the sermons during this fall. This has been a fall of challenging topics that we've been addressing as a church family. I think to that Big Butts series, which was all about objections that people have to the Christian faith. And there we address topics like homosexuality, a very sensitive topic. We address topics of hell, of evolution. We, we discussed why do people think Christians are so intolerant. Last week, Pastor David talked about the topic of lust. Never an easy topic. Today, we're addressing divorce. Another topic that is not easy. It's not comfortable. I think if you wanted to compile a list of sermon topics that make people happy and encouraged and comfortable, things like homosexuality and hell and divorce would not be on that list. But we also, these are realities that we should not just sweep under the rug because the realities in our world, and Jesus has no problem dealing with them. I mean, what we're doing now is just walking step by step through the Sermon on the Mount, and when you're walking step by step through a passage... You should not just sweep under the rug something that that God or Jesus thinks is very important. So today we're addressing this topic of divorce and marriage. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this topic that you willingly and freely talked about 2,000 years ago. We recognize that today this is a topic of marriage and divorce that is full of mixed emotions. On one hand, marriages and especially weddings are times of joy and celebration and excitement. And marriage can be a tremendous blessing, Lord, but we know that marriage is also very challenging and it can, it can lead to a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, a lot of disillusionment, a lot of questions. And Lord, I know this is a topic that is not abstract, but it's also a topic that can be very personal. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will be our teacher through your word and through your spirit. Lord, I pray that we will place ourselves in submission to your word. Not submission to this culture, not submission to what makes us comfortable, Lord. But as we are subjects in your kingdom, Lord, may we be willing to hear what you have to say. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Because we recognize, even as we approach this difficult topic, that we are all sinful people. We are all broken. We have all rebelled against you, Lord. We all have hard hearts at times. We thank you for Jesus. And I pray that in this time that we have together today that we won't merely be focusing on ourselves, on marriage and on divorce, but we'll be focusing on Jesus as well. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to start looking at verses 31 through 32. There Jesus says, It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I um, just want to start off here by one thing I failed to mention earlier. Divorce is a sensitive topic. I came across a, um, a quote this week about pastors and preaching about divorce. The quote said, Divorce is a landmine for preachers. There are so many ways a sermon on divorce can go wrong. And it's probably true. I mean, it's hard to deal with this topic. But again, we just read it right from Jesus' own mouth. That he had no problem talking about divorce. So we needed to address it as well. But something, really the overarching thing that Jesus is addressing here and other places where he talks about this topic is that marriage is a bond that should not be broken. Marriage is a bond that shouldn't be broken. Now, we recognize that divorce is, and it was, very rampant. I mean, it's certainly rampant in our culture today. Statistics show that about 50% of first marriages end in divorce. That in itself is pretty astounding and, and really just, it's heartbreaking when you think about it. That half of all marriages, the first marriage will end in divorce. And many times, if people get divorced once, they think, well, okay, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to do better the second time around. But statistically, 60% of all second marriages end in divorce. 70% of all third marriages end in divorce. And there are some people in our culture, I mean, some famous, some not so much. I mean, I think of uh, talk show host Larry King. He's been married and divorced eight different times. It's kind of crazy when you really think about it. So divorce, it's common. You could even say it's rampant in our culture. It's a very similar situation 2,000 years ago. Divorce is not a recent phenomenon. Back in Jesus' culture, divorce was also rampant. And in some ways, divorce was even easier to obtain then than it is now. Because then, women had practically no rights. They had no say in the matter. So if a man decided, you know what, I want to get a divorce, well, the woman, she just had to go along with it. Women had pretty much no rights in that society. They had no legal rights. Uh, they, they, in general, they couldn't testify in a trial. Um, they, they, they didn't have much of a public life. Uh, they couldn't even bless a meal uh, of food. And so they were oftentimes treated as merchandise to be bought and sold and traded. And so in that culture, if a, if a man decided, you know what, I don't want my wife to be here anymore, he could just cast her off and she didn't have a say in it. And that would make the woman very vulnerable because not only did it damage her reputation, but she didn't oftentimes have a way to sustain herself. So oftentimes women who were divorced would be out on the streets begging. They would have to depend on anyone who would take them in. Many women got caught, many divorced women got caught in the trap of prostitution. And so God, seeing this really tragic uh, scenario here, put in place a piece of legislation that goes way back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the legislation was a certificate of divorce. And the certificate of divorce that Jesus references here regulated divorce and helped protect women. Now, Jesus says, verse 31, anyone who, you've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And like I said, this regulated marriage, or regulated divorce, trying to put some constraints on it, 
and it helped protect women. And, and so, like I said, it has its roots way back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Beginning in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, uh, through Moses, God said, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he gives her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from, her, from his house, and it continues from there with more details about this. But you see, this is the origin of this certificate of divorce. It was, a, it was literally a, some sort of piece of paper that would legalize the divorce. And this prevented the man just from divorcing the woman on a whim and throwing her around the street without any sort of explanation of what's going on. Now, it provided some regulation. At least he had to be able to say, you know what, this is what I find indecent about her. This is why I am getting this divorce. And this, this, this official certificate was something that she could take with her to show, you know what, I am divorced. I'm not just out here being promiscuous. I'm not just out here wandering the streets. My husband has chosen to divorce me. Now, over the years, there was this phrase here of a husband finding something indecent in a woman. And this has been a subject of debate down through the centuries among Jewish rabbis. Of what does it mean to find something indecent with the woman that causes you displeasure that is worthy of divorce? And for many Jew, Jews... Even the Pharisees among Jesus' day, this something indecent could be pretty much anything. For instance, if you have a man who's married and his wife accidentally burns dinner, that could be grounds for divorce. I mean, yeah, sounds kind of wild. But that was the reality back then. If the woman was seen speaking to another man in public or with her hair let down in public, see many of you women have your hair let down this morning, but back then, that could be grounds for divorce because she could be seen as being promiscuous. If the woman was loud and the neighbors could hear the woman talking from, from their house, that could be a reason for divorce. If the woman did not give the husband children, or especially a son, as if that's her fault, that's grounds for divorce. I mean, it got interpreted any number of different ways to give men any way out of a marriage that they wanted. I mean, even if the, the husband saw another woman who's more attractive, has a better personality than his wife, he could say, well, that's something indecent in, in, in my wife. There's something better out there. So that, too, is grounds for divorce. So this is the context that Jesus was speaking into where in that culture, just like today's culture, divorce happened for pretty much any and every reason. And so we may have a question of why did God allow a certificate of divorce? Why did he allow divorce way back there in Deuteronomy chapter 24? That's a good question. That's actually the same question that was asked of Jesus in a later point in his ministry. At this point, I want to invite us to turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 contains an account that is actually extremely similar in terms of the topics addressed as what Jesus was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just that here in Matthew 19 is much more expanded. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. It says that some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So you hear this, this idea here of, Hey, is it fine for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Just like if she burns the meal, if she can't give him a son, if she lets her hair down, if she's a little loud... Well, Jesus responds, verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? 
and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command the man give his wife her certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the Pharisees had this very same question. Jesus, if, if divorce is so against God's will, why did God essentially sanction divorce? Why did God allow it to take place rather than just saying back in Deuteronomy, hey, you shouldn't ever divorce? Jesus' response is that, you know what? Everyone's hearts were hard. They were unwilling to submit to God's will, but God's perfect design for marriage. And so God, he's looking at this really tragic, really messy situation, and he recognizes that even if he gives, gives legislation that you shouldn't divorce, people are going to do it anyway. And so what he's doing is making a provision to try to help regulate, try to bring some degree of health to a very messy situation, even though ultimately he disapproves of divorce. But he's trying to just bring something good from a messy situation that hurts a lot of people. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, it's from when I was growing up. My sister and I, my sister is Adrian. She is three years younger than me. Um, when we were younger, we didn't get along all that well. I mean, really, we were probably typical brother and sister, just pushed each other, other's buttons, got on each other's nerves. I, I did share a story about her and my anger towards her a couple of weeks ago. Um, the anger was not two weeks ago. The story was two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> We actually have a really good relationship now. Once we both hit high school, got a little bit more mature, we became very good friends. But as we were growing up, we shared a bathroom. Now, this bathroom was really pretty well set up for two people to share it. I mean, it had a separate place for, a to for the toilet and the bathtub. Um, we had two different sinks. There. They were separated by a countertop that was about that wide. You would think, for a brother and sister, that would be a pretty decent setup. You would think. But, but for us, not so much. Because we would still fight over whose stuff is on which side, who gets to use the outlets that are on each side. And I mean, we were fighting a lot. So my parents came up with a great plan. They put a piece of tape right down the center of the counter. They said, this is Brandon's side. This is Adrian's side. Your stuff cannot cross. Now, that was not an ideal solution. The ideal solution would have been that my sister and I could get along that we would be kind to each other, that we would be respectful of each other, that we would be understanding of each other. That would be the ideal solution. That would have made my parents' hearts very, very happy. But instead, they came up with a provision to try to regulate a situation that was messy, that was less than ideal. We were unwilling to submit to the ideal solution of being completely kind and gentle with one another. So they came up with a provision. The provision worked pretty well. But this was a picture of what God was doing. The people were unwilling to submit to the ideal solution. So God, looking at a very messy situation that hurt a lot of people, put a provision in place to help regulate things to a degree, to help protect people as much as possible. 
But what Jesus is saying in both of these passages that we're looking at this morning is that if you're focused merely on divorce and, okay, what are the reasons I can get a divorce? Jesus is saying, you know what? You're really missing the point here. Because the point is that divorce is not really the goal. Divorce is not God's ideal here. God's ideal, God's plan is that marriage is an inseparable union of two becoming one. That's what Jesus points out in verses 4 through 6 in Matthew 19. I'm going to read them again. Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus here is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He's pointing to the foundation of marriage. Then marriage, the two become one. No longer are they two separate entities making their own decisions, operating as separate individuals. They're not even roommates who are sharing the same place. They're not even good friends who, are, who share the same bank account and eat meals together. They are two who have now become one. The picture here is one flesh, that now they are operating as one individual, one body. And so the picture of divorce, when that happens, is that this one flesh is ripped apart. It's like taking our body, and think about how, hurt, how much it would hurt to rip your body in two. But that's the picture that Jesus is giving of what happens in divorce, that you're taking the two that have become one and ripping them apart. And we have to recognize that marriage is not merely a human decision, and it's not merely a human activity, but there is a spiritual and divine aspect of it where it's actually God joining the two together. And that's why Jesus says, um, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So this picture of marriage is that ideally it's an inseparable union of the two becoming one. Now we have to recognize in our society, it's a very different picture. Many people view marriage more as a contract agreement. That each side has something they need to uphold. And if the other side lets down on their side of the contract, well, then you can opt out of the contract. That's why we have no-fault divorces. That's why we have irreconcilable differences that, you know, people just say, you know, we aren't getting along. We can't reconcile our differences, so let's get a divorce. It's a contract. That's how people view it. If, if the going gets tough, well, you have the right to go out and... And go your own way. And you have plenty of lawyers who are going to support you in the process. But that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is that marriage is not a contract, but that it is a covenant. There is a big difference here. Because the contract, each side has something they need to uphold. And if one side lets down their end of the deal, you can opt out of it. But the covenant says, I am committed to this for better or worse. I mean, you think about the typical uh, traditional vows that take place in a marriage. That you commit, them, commit yourself um, as a husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. That is a covenant. That's saying, you know what, whatever happens, richer or poorer, better or worse, sickness, health, I'm committing myself to this person until death do us part. That's not a contract, that's a covenant. And that is a picture of how God has designed marriage to work. Now we see in our passages, both passages, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, that there is talk about this idea of adultery. So what is Jesus talking about here about adultery, especially 
that if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, he commits adultery. What's this talking about? Well, it goes back to this idea of this one flesh union. That God does this amazing spiritual thing that when, when a husband and wife are united together, that they become one. They're one flesh union. And that even if they get a paper that says that they are divorced, even if there's a court decree saying they're divorced, then in God's eyes, they are still married. They are still one flesh. So what happens if a person then gets remarried, then that is essentially adultery because it's an intrusion on the original one flesh union. Now, in both of these passages, Jesus does point out one exception that prevents it from being adultery. One exception that says divorce is allowable in God's eyes. And that is when adultery has already taken place in the marriage relationship. When one of the spouses has committed adultery, then God says, Jesus says, it's allowable for divorce to happen. It's not saying divorce has to happen. Ideally, there would be reconciliation and repairing of the relationship. And there are many instances where even when the ugliness of adultery happens in a marriage, marriage is able to be healed and even healthier than it ever was before. But Jesus says, you know what? At that point, the marriage bond has been broken, so you, you are free to go your own way in God's eyes. You don't have to, but you're free to. Now, divorce, it's a sticky situation. I mean, it's hard. It's painful. And I know that it is not an abstract idea. It's something that, that all of us are affected by in various ways some more intimately than others, some more painful than others. But it's a reality that we deal with. And like I said, it's sticky because you look at this thing and you're like, it's hard to even get to the bottom of what's going on in a marriage that's falling apart. I mean, Jesus here says that if there is adultery, then divorce is allowable in God's eyes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that one other acceptable reason in God's eyes for divorce is if you have a Christian married to a non-Christian, And typically that would happen back in that culture where you have two non-Christians who get married. One spouse becomes a Christian. And then Paul says, if that non-Christian spouse says, you know what, I don't want to live with the Christian spouse anymore. If the non-Christian spouse abandons the Christian spouse, then that too is an allowable divorce in God's eyes. And biblically, those are the two exceptions to marriage until death do us part. But again, it gets messy because then you have questions. Well, what about if there is an addiction involved? What about if there is abuse? I will say on the abuse category that if there is a marriage in which there is abuse of the spouse, of children, I am going to support to the very end of my being that the people being abused getting out of that situation, getting to a safe spot, and not going back until there is something in place that's going to address the situation and make sure that the abuse does not happen again. But it's still, it's messy. And even when you try to, when you have a counseling situation or you're just trying to figure out, okay, what is the root issue here? Oftentimes, by the time it gets to that point of, of considering divorce, the issues are so deep, so intertwined, so ugly, it's hard to really understand what in the world is going on here. And so we just have to recognize, you know what? We live in a broken, messy world, and divorce is just one picture of this messiness. But I think we also have to be careful to be just supportive of people who are going through these challenges as well. Because you look at the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, says, you know what? We all have sin in our lives. 
divorce and marital strife can certainly be an indicator of sin. But so can gossip. So can pride. So can greed. So can lust. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But we all have sin in our lives. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is the offer of redemption. Redemption takes something that was stained, that was marred, that was broken, that maybe was less usable, and it makes it new. It makes it more vital. It gives it, gives it the newness of life and purpose. And through Christ, whatever type of background we have, whatever bad decisions we've made in the past, whatever sin we have in our lives now or in the future, God offers redemption. He offers newness of life. So we need to make sure that here as a church culture here at Freedens, that if we want to be centered on the gospel, we need to make sure that, you know what, even if people have divorce as part of their past or part of their present, that they are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. The people who have divorce as part of their family story, it's the same thing as if, if we have greed, if we have pride or, or lust or anything else. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all are broken people who come before God and say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your redemption. I need your forgiveness. And so it's a messy situation. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, okay, I'm glad that I don't have divorce as part of my family story. I don't, I'm glad that I'm still married or glad that I'm not married yet. Um, and I'm going to make sure I, when I get married, I do it right so that I don't have that as part of my story. But that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook. Because if you are married, or if you're going to be married someday, that is a huge responsibility. And we have to recognize that marriage requires maintenance. It's funny how we all know that our cars require maintenance. I mean, you change the oil every 3,000 miles. You change the brake rotors and pads on a periodic basis. You do things to maintain your car, because if you don't maintain your car, it's going to be very costly, and it might break down on you. We maintain our house... But for some reason, we put so much more energy oftentimes into maintaining our car or our house or our hobbies than we do into our marriage. But marriage, if we don't seek to intentionally invest in it and maintain it and increase its health and vitality, it's going to become very broken, very costly, just as a car will if you don't maintain it. So I want to challenge us. If we are married or if we're going to be married someday, to be zealous and passionate about creating a healthy marriage. I mean, we pursue all kinds of things with zeal and passion. I mean, if you're a Packers fan, you're probably going to be zealous to go to that TV at 3 o'clock this afternoon to watch the Packers play the Patriots. If you have a hobby, odds are good you're zealous to go make sure that you are, um, are investing in that hobby. If you have a car that gets maybe up to 5,000 miles since the last oil change, you're probably going to get pretty zealous to make sure your car gets in there for an oil change. May we be zealous and passionate to pursue healthy marriages. Now, one of the things I've thought about over the last few years as I've interacted with people in their marriages, as I've reflected in my nearly 10 years of marriage, is I think there are a couple of keys in a healthy marriage. I mean, one is definitely on the, having it on the foundation of Christ. But on a very practical level, I think trust and communication are essential to a healthy marriage. That if you can keep trust and healthy communication going, you're going to be able to maintain a healthy marriage. But if trust breaks down, it's really hard to rebuild that trust. And if communication breaks down, a marriage can keep going for a while, but once communication breaks down, it's not going to be long before other parts of the marriage start breaking down too. And I find most people, most marriages... 
are really bad at communication. <laughs> even individuals, even if you aren't married. Most people, some people are good at talking, but being good at communication is different than just being good at talking. So I want to challenge us. Be zealous at building and maintaining the trust in our marriage and communicating. Now for men, I'm going to speak to men for a minute because I'm a man and I feel the freedom to speak to men about these topics. Men, most of us are not as good at communicating as our wives are. Wives, I mean, at the very least, least wives like to talk in general. Not always, but in general. It's a stereotype they find to be somewhat true. Um, but men, a stereotype for men, which I find to be also true, is that men generally do not talk and communicate their feelings all that well. And you may be thinking, okay, he's going all Dr. Phil on us and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's a reality. Let me read to you an imaginary diary or a journal entry about a man and a woman, husband and wife, reflecting on their same day's activities and events. Here's the wife's journal. She said, Tonight my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me, and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. So that's the wife's journal entry. Here's the husband's journal entry from that same day. Rough day. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. That's the end. Is that not the way that it oftentimes works, though? The wife is analyzing everything, digging deep, trying to get to the root of the feelings. And the husband is just looking at surface value. It's like, man, that's a rough day. But he holds it more inside. I want to challenge you. If you're a man, to build a healthy marriage, you need to communicate with your wife. Last week, Pastor David talked about one, strate- one strategy for doing that. You know what? At the end of each day, just talk about three things that happened that day and how you felt about them. Whether it's good, bad, indifferent. Just describe, okay, three things that happened and how you feel. That can work wonders in communication in a marriage and increasing intimacy in a marriage and, and increasing vitality in a marriage. Just communicate with your spouse. That will work wonders. And make sure that she knows that she is your priority. Your priority over work, your priority over your hobbies, your priority over the Packers, even your priority over your kids' activities. I mean, the greatest gift that parents can give to their kids, first of all, is Christ, and secondly, is a healthy marriage. You you need to invest in your marriage. That is one of the greatest gifts that you can ever give to your kids. For you women, I'd be safer having a woman come up here to give you advice. I didn't plan that. I guess maybe I'm not going to do an open mic time either. But I would say, if you're a wife, focus on how you can encourage your husband. Because oftentimes, especially if marriage starts to get hard or struggling, it's easy to become more nagging. 
and more focused on the honey do list, more focused on, you know, I wish you did this, I wish we would talk more. And you focus on all the things that would help make a better marriage. But it sounds like nagging to the husband. And, and you know what? There are probably things the husband needs to hear. That also encourage you to help his ears open up to what you want to say. Focus on encouraging him, building him up, showing that you respect and value him, that what he's doing is worthwhile. Because that can really help increase the love and, and the connection in the marriage and, incre- and open him up more to meeting you where you are and communicating with you. So I'm going to leave that one alone for now, but I do want to encourage you, be zealous and passionate about your marriage, about creating a very healthy marriage. Now, for some of you, you aren't married at this point. You may be thinking, okay, this is a very high view of marriage, of the idea that, that you know what, once you're married, you're stuck with that person. I mean, that's how some people view it. But I want to challenge you. You know what? You're not the first person to think that. I mean, the disciples, after hearing Jesus talk about marriage in Matthew 19, here in verse 10, the disciples said, well, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. You may be thinking that. That's what a lot of people think today. I mean, that's why cohabitation, living together without being married, is so, so common. People look at marriage and think, well, I'm not going to be able to do it right, so I'm not going to get married in the first place. I would say that living together before marriage biblically is not any better than getting divorced. Well, I mean, I guess I'm not trying to put them on a scale, but I would say that living together without being married is jumping the gun. It's not going to lead to a healthier marriage, and it's not going to help your Christian witness at all. It's not going to help you avoid sexual temptation at all. So, So that's not really a great option either. The best option is to prayerfully and patiently, if you aren't married, Look for the right person, a person who loves Christ, a person who has a track record of being respectful, being kind, being gracious, being generous, being forgiving. And when you find that person, spend time getting to know them. Make sure it's the right person before you get married. And then once you're married, invest yourself fully in creating a healthy Christ-centered marriage. Now, many people today have a view of marriage that is a little bit warped. Many people's view of marriage is that it's made to make us happy. But author Gary Thomas in the book Sacred Marriage reminds us, you know what? God didn't design marriage to make us happy, but to make us holy. We live in a very narcissistic society that's all about, okay, what's going to make me happy? And that's the mentality many people bring to marriage. But that's not the mentality God brings to marriage. God's view of marriage is that it's meant to refine us, to make us holy. And that's not an easy, comfortable process. God's view of marriage is also that human marriage... It's designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his bride. Because there is a divine marriage between Christ and the church that our human marriages point to. Our human marriages, at their best, point to the beauty of the design of the divine marriage. Now, the marriage between God and his people has certainly not been pretty either through the years. There's been a lot of rebellion, a lot of spiritual adultery, a lot of hard-heartedness. But God was faithful to his covenant, and he kept pursuing his people, ultimately sending Jesus Christ into this world. And now I want to turn us, as we close, to Ephesians chapter 5. It's a passage about marriage, picking up in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So he's saying, okay, 
Look, Christ died on the cross. He was resurrected to, to purify his bride, the church. And he goes, Paul goes on to say um, that, that after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. It's this one flesh union between Christ and his body just as you have the one flesh union between a husband and wife. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So he's saying that, that this union between Christ and the church is the ultimate picture of marriage. It was not an easy process, not a pretty process, but Jesus won the victory over sin and death on the cross. He passes on that victory to us. And we now, if our faith is in Christ, are looking forward to that wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. The bride, his bride has made herself ready. We are looking forward to that day when there will be no more separation between, between us and God. No more sin to create those barriers. And that relationship between Christ and his bride and how he is faithful to her and forgiving of her and purifying her and pursuing her is to characterize the relationship that we have in our marriages as well. A relationship of forgiveness, of pursuit, of passion, of commitment. May our marriages, if we are married, or if we're going to be married someday, point to this heavenly reality of a God who is passionately pursuing his people and if we aren't married at this point or if we'll never be married again, may we be people who support those who are married and encourage them and build them up and help them to have marriages that honor God. And, and if you are not married at this point or in the future, know that you have an ultimate groom. Even for men, we have a groom, Christ. And we look forward to that day when we are married to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you give us grace because we look at this reality of marriage, divorce, strife. Lord, it's hard. Even for those of us who are married, marriage is not easy and we are people who are in desperate need of your grace. Lord, I pray that we will zealously and passionately pursue healthy relationships with those around us, whether they're marriage relationships, whether they're friendships, whether they're evangelistic relationships with non-Christians. Lord, may our relationships be characterized by forgiveness, by commitment, by love, by vitality that points people ultimately to Christ. Lord, please give us the grace that we need to live in light of the kingdom of God. We pray these things in the King's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.